I've, re- I've used this as an illustration before, but it's apt today. Um, Michelangelo's statue of David there in the Academia in Florence, Italy, is just a breathtaking thing to see in person. Um, when it was dedicated um, back in 1504, uh, it was generally agreed that it was perfect. It was perfect. Now, of course, as I've said before, there are flaws in the statue. There are little fissures, small little cracks down in the legs of David. The balance is just kind of weird the way he leans. One day he will fall. It's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. That statue will fall. And um, it'll, it'll just break into a million pieces when it does. We're seeing the, the image of David. We're seeing the, the person of David in some ways. We're seeing that structure around his persona and around his kingdom and around his government. We're beginning to see that crumble. We've seen the flaws throughout as we've worked our way up to this. Um, we, we saw it, I guess, more, most clearly there um, when we saw David's sin with Bathsheba. And we saw all that had kind of been going on in his heart with uh, multiple wives and these things going on in his life. And we saw that kind of come crumbling down in, in that event. But the consequences of that are what we're seeing now in this portion of Second Samuel. And if you look at your introduction there that I put in your sermon notes, um, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching this from the get-go just a little bit differently. Truths in God's words can sometimes see, seem to us contradictory in some ways. Uh, and no place is that more problematic, if you will, more mysterious to us than in uh, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God over everything, as we try to reconcile that with the accountability and the, and the free will that God has given us to make choices. But that's not a mystery in God's mind. That's, gonna not, that's not a mystery um, as we see it unfold in Scripture. And, and that, that contradiction is something of what we see unfolding here in this portion of Second Samuel. The Lord declares in Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. He says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. On the other side of that is the assurance that we have, what we see playing out over and over and over in Scripture, is that each of us will give an, of, of ourselves an account to God. Jesus said we'll answer for everything, even every out of word. And we'll stand before God and we'll recognize the truth of what Paul said in Galatians 6-7, that God is not marked. Whatever we sow, we'll reap. We are accountable for the choices we make. And we see that unfolding here. God has declared to David, remember, that because of your sin, the judgment of God upon David does not diminish or in any way take away God's promise that David's kingdom will stand forever through his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet God has said there will be judgment upon your house. Evil will rise up against you from within your own house. And boy, does it ever. Does it ever. 
And so we see these seemingly contradictory truths in this. So we have a a long way to go and a short time to get there. If I get as far as I'd like to get today, we're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 14. But to help us, and if you look at your sermon notes there, just look at your outline. Um, The first thing that's important for us to see is what is evident already is this schism. The division that's going on in David's house, what's happening there in his family. His family is in shambles, all right? Now, I want you to look at one verse at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning verse in chapter 14, and let's talk about it for just a second before we move forward. So, what has happened here, remember, David is in the middle of what I cannot imagine a father going through. One son has raped his daughter, and the other son has killed that son. And David is covered up in grief, in anger, in emotions that are beyond my ability to even comprehend. Anger, sadness, discouragement, disappointment, all of those things are going on. And verse 39 in chapter 13 is one of, scholars say, one of the most difficult verses in First and Second Samuel to understand in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is very tough. And so the ESV, the version we use here, and you're, you may be reading in a different version, reads this way. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Solomon because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. That doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. It, it, it reads awkwardly. The next verse, verse 1 in chapter 14 says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So the Hebrew is really hard to interpret. And some scholars, and I think the context supports this, say that the idea there is not that David's heart longed to go out to. The preposition in Hebrew could be either go out to or to go against. It could be either way. And so there are some versions that translate that, that not that David's heart went out or longed to go out to Absalom, but it longed to go against him. And so I I believe that's what it says. I believe that's how it should be read. Here's why the context, I think, supports that. Why would Joab, as we'll see in just a minute, go to such great lengths to do something that David already wanted to do. I think Joab goes to the great lengths that he does because David's heart is set against Absalom. And Joab wants to see that reversed. He wants to see that fixed. He wants to see that reconciliation take place. And so I think the context supports an understanding that says David, understandably, is furious with Amnon. And the more he grieves, excuse me, with Absalom, and the more he grieves Amnon's death, the, the fiercer that contrast and that difficulty with those emotions. Grieving one son and angry against the other one because he did it. So this is going on in David's heart. And Joab sees this in verse 1 of chapter 14. He sees the the difficulty that's going on in David's life. And later on, we're going to see where he contrives this story to try to convince David to reconcile with Absalom. And, And the woman telling the story says, Joab does all this in order to change the course of things. 
Joab knows that the kingdom doesn't need this strife between a king and his prince, a king and his son. So he tries to fix it. And so there's a schism in David's family. And it is a deep divide between the father and the son. And that is exactly what God has said was going to happen. That does not let Absalom off the hook. That's just the way God is deciding and determining to work out that judgment. And so Joab, as we see, comes up with a scheme. All right? And it is not so subtle. All right? It's really not. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but let's read here in chapter 14 how Joab determines to try to fix this situation. In his scheming, he wants to bring about reconciliation that's really unwanted on David's part, I believe. Read in verse 2 with me, starting in chapter 14. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, Joab is a fixer. He's a fixer. Susan, I'll be watching a TV program or something once in a while, and there's this person on that show who just gets things done. All right. It's almost like the one giving the orders or in charge doesn't even really have to say everything. It's like, just fix this. And I say, you know, I'd like to have someone like that. Someone around me who's just a fixer. They're going to get it done. I don't even have to explain it. They know what needs to be done. Joab is a fixer. All right. Now he is. Now, sometimes he fixes things in a, in a wrong way. All right. A knife to the gut that we saw earlier was Joab's way of fixing one thing. So I'm not sure Joab is our model for how, west, how best to work through situations and circumstances. But Joab wants to fix this, and so he basically puts together the dialogue. He puts words in this woman's mouth. So the woman from Tekoa goes to the king in verse 4. She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother, whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left And leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So she comes with this story. This, it it, it seems to be um, almost Nathan-like. You know, Nathan came to David with a story as he was confronting him with the sin with Bathsheba. So Nathan came with this story trying to stir up in David something that David seems to have either forgotten or set aside. Well, this woman does the same thing. Joab has given her this story, and it's culturally very clear what has happened. It's, it's, it should remind us of two other brothers way earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, who were fighting in the field, and one killed the other. And all of a sudden, a father is left to grieve the death of a son because of the murder 
at the hand of another son. So here is this picture of these two, two boys fighting in the field, and one kills the other. Now, in this case, it seems to be manslaughter. It doesn't seem to be like it was, you know, an intentional murder. So David hears this story. He's still not quite made the connection yet. The king said to the woman in verse 8, Go to your house, I'll give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, O my lord king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. Like she wants to, in a way, she's trying to really play to David's prestige, to his position. No, I don't want you to take responsibility for this king. The king said in verse 10, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? It's like, I'll take care of this. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives... Not one hair on your son shall fall to the ground. Nathan gave David a story to stir up in in him his sense of justice, right? This man had this one lamb precious to him. It was taken, slaughtered, fed to somebody else. David's sense of justice stirred up. The story Joab has contrived through this woman is meant to stir up David's sense of compassion. As a father, David ought to sense and, and, and we'll see in just a minute that indeed he does. So she comes to stir up David's compassion. And it goes a little bit further here because after she's told this story, she then kind of lets the cat out of the bag indirectly. Verse 12, please let your servant speak to my Lord, the king. And he said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. So, not only is the king's compassion stirred, but she challenges the king and just says, here's the situation, David. And the family that is in danger here because of David's division with Absalom, she says, is not some remote family. It is the people of God. It is the family of Israel. It is the nation of Israel. Because she says there, In giving this decision, the king convicts himself, and the such a thing she said in that previous verse is against. So, David, the nation is at risk because of this fissure, because of this division between you and Absalom. And then she lays it on thick. She really lays it on thick. The king finally, David finally sees through this. And he he says, wait a minute, something in here sounds a little weird. Verse 18, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord, the king, speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? So all of a sudden, David sees through the story. And this woman is a great actress. I mean, she's she's done well. Um, Wore the right outfit. She didn't bathe. She's done all that she's supposed to do while she's grieving. And David sees through it. And says, wait a minute, is, jo- is Joab behind all this? And then this woman, wow, I, I don't think this was in the script. I think she's kind of going off script here. Because look at how she just plays to David and builds him up. And, and he says, was, was Joab in this? And in verse 20, in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all the things that are on the earth. 
Wow, she's laying it on thick there. And then later on, it's just like, well, no, David's actually not that bright. Because what we're about to see unfold, he's in the dark on. He doesn't see any of this that's happening around him. But she she builds him up. She encourages him. Here's what here's what's going on in this portion of chapter 14. And it's a lot of what we've seen before. A lot of manipulation. A lot of scheming. A lot of talk about wisdom and insight. And yet we see very little of that in actuality. And the wisdom we see here is not actually the wisdom that is held up for us as a model. Yeah, Joab's a fixer. And lots of times in our culture, you know, it's the end justifies the means. Let's just get it done. Try to diminish the number of casualties that may lay in the wake. But this is not God's wisdom. And how do I know that? Well, you can turn over in the New Testament to the book of James in chapter 3. And James helps us discern and gives us clarity in the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. I'll just read it to you. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Implied in that, if Joab were to answer that, it's the one who gets it done. But no, that's not the answer. By his good conduct, the one with wisdom, James says, let him show in works, in, in his works, in the meekness of wisdom. So there's a humility there. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above. But instead, James says, that wisdom is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So you see that fruit of worldly wisdom? You don't always see it on the front end, but jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, division, vileness, vile practices. In contrast, James says, the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason or to to conversation, open to compromise, I believe, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom that we see here, although it may seem to accomplish its purpose in chapter 14, actually in the end does not. So the king, let's see how it ends up. Then the king said to Joab, I'm in verse 21, Behold, now I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And so Joab fell to, on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own, in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Wow. So the king relents. Well, not really. He does partially, right? So for the last three years, Absalom has been living with his grandfather. He's been living with 
the, the, the parent of one of David's wives. Okay. And as he's been living there in this, in this exile, if you will, separated from David, Joab convinces David through this story that Joab needs to, that Absalom needs to come back into the city, back to Jerusalem. So he comes back. But has reconciliation taken place here? I think here too we see David's heart. I think the reason we could say David's heart was not going out to reconcile with Absalom back in the beginning of chapter 14 and at the end of chapter 13 is because even when Absalom comes back into Jerusalem, David said, he can come back into town, but he is not going to see my face and I don't want to see his. So there's not really reconciliation here. It's a mess. David is trying to please others and please himself, I believe, at the same time. I think we can see some of that. Bring him back, but not too close. Sadly, here's, here's what I think we can discern is going on in David's life. David has had a daughter raped. He's had a son murdered by his other son. His house is falling apart around him. And all we see in David is an emotional response, but inactivity. He didn't really do anything to come to Tamar and try to comfort her. He didn't address Amnon's sin as the king who holds in his hand the responsibility of justice. He didn't do anything to Amnon. I believe some of what's going on in Absalom's heart is frustration with his dad. Frustration with the king. I think we'll see later on, Absalom doesn't think he's done anything wrong. In fact, he believes he's done what David should have done in taking care of Amnon. So there's inactivity. There's passivity. There's a superficial level of relationships in this dysfunctional family. They don't want to talk about anything. They want to go, they don't want to go deep to talk about the issues that may be going on. Oh, he can live in town, but I don't want to see his face. So, Absalom comes back into town, and we are going to see Absalom dominate for the next four or five chapters in 2 Samuel. He will be the primary character. So look at what comes next. We've had this schism between David and his family, really a schism in the, in the nation. There's scheming on the part of Joab that's really not that subtle. And now there's a shadow of Saul. A shadow of Saul. And what's similar here is there's good looks and godlessness. Notice what comes next. And what's crazy about this or what's interesting about this is that if we were to take verse 25 all the way down through verse 27 and just remove it from the, from the text, remove it from the story, it would flow perfectly. It does, it's inserted in here and it's almost like, why is that there? Because it says in verse 24, let him dwell in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into king's presence. Down in verse 28, Absalom lived a full two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So we could have skipped from one to the other and not missed anything, it seems. But this is important. 
Notice what it says there in verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair on his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. By the way, that's around 80 pounds. Okay? This is an impressive lock. It just is. Some of you boys just, all right, it's just impressive. All right? There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. So Absalom has these four children that were recorded here, three sons and a daughter who's named after his sister. And it's an impressive family from an impressive man, physically speaking. He was renowned, okay? The text said he was praised for how good-looking he is. This man stood out in a crowd. Well, I guess you would with 80 pounds of hair on your head, all right? And, and there's, you know, I don't know the names of all these male models that I've seen pictures of over the years. I don't really pay much attention to that. But this is impressive, okay? And it's meant to impress us. We should be reminded as we read this description of Absalom of someone who came before him. Of, of someone in second, excuse me, in First Samuel chapter nine that was described as a handsome young man, that there was not among the people of Israel another man like him, and in his case, in Saul's case, he was shoulders upward taller than any other man in Israel. So the heads of these two men are impressive. One for being so tall, the other for being just so good looking. He's a perfect physical specimen, it seems to tell us. Wow. Remember what happens when people make their choices based on appearance instead of character? What happens? Well, it does not go well. And God's been very clear about that, even over and earlier in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Do not look at the appearance of his stature, the Lord said, because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as a man sees. The man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Absalom is impressive. He's good looking and he is godless. And we will see that made clear throughout these next few chapters. And David, and, and excuse me, and Absalom plays on that. So let's see how the rest of the chapter unfolds. All right. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So understand the time frame here. Most scholars agree that from the time of what happened with Bathsheba until the time this is beginning to unfold for us here at the end of chapter 14 is somewhere around 10, maybe even 12 years. So David is, at this point in time, it's generally agreed, well into his 60s. All right? So, so his family is, is, is older. David is older. And as we see this beginning to unfold here, Absalom has lived separated from his father now for five full years. It's been five years since David has seen his son or the son has seen David. Five years is a long time. To be separated from your child. It's been 
five years of exile and five years of shame on Absalom's part. Because there's great shame in this culture and in this context by a prince, if you will, or by one of the king's children not being allowed into the court. Not being allowed to be a part of the family, be a part of all that goes on with the king. Absalom has been shamed, if you will, by being removed from the family. Now, some of it's of his own decision. He's the one who ran away. But David's made no attempt to reconcile to him. So five years in exile, five years in shame, and five years, I believe, of frustration. Now, I'm not defending Absalom in any way. I want us to understand what's going on in his mind and heart. Frustration in this. Dad, you should have taken care of this five years ago. Dad, your daughter was raped. And Dad, your son did it. And Dad, you had the authority as king to carry out justice on him. Not necessarily by way of execution, although that's what Absalom would have chosen. But David did nothing. And so Absalom has watched now for all these years as maybe David is receding a little bit in his ability. The kingdom seems to be flourishing. The machinery of government is rolling along. And Absalom's been watching this from a distance. And Absalom is tired of it. So he calls up Joab. And Joab doesn't answer his phone. And he calls again. And Joab won't take his call. And so what does Absalom do? He sets his farm on fire. That'll get his attention. I guess it would. So he tried to call him. He never answered. He tried to get in touch with him. Two full years. He sent for Joab. Joab just is giving him the cold shoulder. He's not answering. So he said, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. He says to his servants, go set it on fire. By the way, I would not want to be a servant in any of these guys' house. Because they are doing some really dirty work. These same servants of Absalom who are about to commit arson have committed murder when they killed Amnon two years ago. Or three. Well, five now. Five. So, set his field on fire. That will get his attention. Did it work? You better believe it. You better believe it. Joab says, what's up? Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answers him, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king. And Absalom's question is legit. Why have I come from Geshur? Why have I come from my grandfather's house? It would have been better for me to stay there. Absalom is saying, take me before the king. If I'm guilty, then execute judgment on me. Now, Absalom doesn't see himself as guilty of anything other than doing what David should have done. But he says, take me to the king. If there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. And so Joab went to the king. And, and, and the king relented. And I've titled this little section here, A Reluctant Kiss. And David's acquiescence. David unwillingly, I believe, Brings Absalom into his office, into the court. And it is a cold encounter. It's been five years. There's no tears recorded. There's no embrace, it seems. There's no mention of dad and no mention of son. There's a mention of a servant, if you will, implied, 
bowing down before the king. David's name is not used. It's just a formal meeting between a subject and a king. And there's a kiss. I think it was probably just a kiss on the head or some formality. I think it's a reluctant kiss. And it is awkward. It is cold. It is official. And it does nothing. Other than let the serpent into the house. As we're going to see begin to unfold. What happens here is no one is reconciled and nothing is better. And like most dysfunctional families, out of sight is out of mind. Let's don't talk about the issues. Let's just keep it shallow and superficial. And David's failure to address Tamar's rape enraged Absalom. And that hot-headed son, who is very patient, who waited a long time to work out his revenge, if you will, or his understanding of justice on his brother, he waited a long time. He waited two years. He's about to wait again now. And he has been. And I believe those wheels have been turning. And so Absalom plotted a murder back in chapter 13. And I believe for the last couple of years at least, Absalom's been plotting a rebellion. And I don't know that his desire is to kill his dad, to kill the king. But he'll do whatever he needs to do to rebel and take the throne. And that's what we see picking up here in chapter 15. Let's look at just a little bit of portion of it, and, and I'm going to kind of set the stage for what's going to come over the next couple of chapters. And I've called this the serpent's coup. All right? And it's a political play if there's ever been one. Because what we see here is Absalom's playing the crowd, even as he's conspiring to take the throne. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Well, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man would come near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And it says there next, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of all the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed give me back, bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. When Absalom went... With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. But they went in their innocence. They knew nothing. 
And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city in Galo. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. So, this ten years or so that has spanned in David's life, and while the wheels of government have been turning, then the wheels in Absalom's mind have been turning as well. And Absalom's politics here are all too familiar. He hits the streets, and he looks really, really good. And he looks really, really strong. It's no accident that the author here tells us that Absalom got a chariot and horses and 200 men to go before him. What helps us, I think, understand what's going on here is what comes to mind if we go back and read some of David's psalms. He said in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots in verse 7, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 31 says that God's people, the people of Israel, are not together to themselves horses and chariots. They're to trust in him. They're to rely on his wisdom and his strength. So here Absalom is taking on the power structure of the world with the horses and chariots and his entourage leads him through town. He looks strong. He sounds strong. He loves to shake hands. He loves to kiss the babies. I can see this going on because listen to the conversation that's recorded for us in this passage of Scripture. He comes there to the city gate where all the city work is done, where it seems, you know, people would come and meet the judges and do the things. And, and he gets down on the hand, you know, gets down at eye level. Tell me, why did you come to the city today? Where are you from, by the way? Oh, wow. That's a serious issue. Man, I just wish there was someone here that could help you with that. Maybe a little... Sparkle in his eye. Oh, it'd be so good if there was someone here who cared enough about you to really help you fix that. If I were in there, I'd clean that swamp out. Things would be different. That's exactly what we see recorded here. That's exactly what Absalom's doing. What we need to do here, Absalom says, is drain the swamp and fill it with people like me. Because I care. Look at me. So he's playing politics, and he's also implementing a power grab. Because while this time has been going on, the only time this particular politician, this particular man, mentions God, and the last time we will hear any reference to God from his lips, is in when he recounts this, this oath that he says he took. He said, I made this vow that I would come back and worship here. By the way, Hebron is the historical center of the republic, the place where the government was carried out. So there's some symbolism in there as well. So his his power grab begins with a lie. I don't believe there's any truth to this at all. That lie being, I made a vow to go back there and worship. But that's, that's the story he's contrived. And he strengthens it with the support that he's garnered over these years. And I think this is something that he's been doing. With his spies, it says, with those that he sent out. He sent them out and they've gone out and kind of spread the word. When you hear the trumpet sound, then it's time to go into action. Announce that I am king. Absalom is king in Hebron. So he's, he's, it begins with a lie. He strengthens it with his support. 
Now, he brings along this entourage, and they are completely unaware. They don't really know what they're about to get into. But he's going to have that number there with him to at least give credibility in the numbers. And by the way, he does mention the Lord. He he mentions God there. But then he does an inside work. And this is significant when it says there in verse 12 that while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, on the side he sent for Ahithophel. David's counselor. We've heard, I referenced this when this issue with David and Bathsheba came up. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel is probably David's age, David's peer. He was David's counselor. And Absalom has gone to call for him and he's come to Absalom. And I think scholars tend to, this isn't my idea, but scholars seem to agree that what's going on here is that Ahithophel remembers what David did to his granddaughter. And he remembers what David did to his granddaughter's son. And that's been an issue. And now he has time and an opportunity to do something about it. So as Absalom is contriving his rebellion, it's just not a stretch, I don't think at all, to assume that Ahithophel has had some ill will toward David, and now that infected boil is about to burst. It's about to burst. And there it tells us that the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. We'll stop there, and if you'll look at your sermon notes there, I gave you some points of application I want us to think about for just a second before we come to the communion table. And yes, there is a bridge from here to there. Okay, I know it's there. There is a bridge there. Now, we may struggle back to where I introduced this sermon. We may struggle with what seems like contradictory truths. But there is no con. There is no contradiction here in God's mind. And I don't believe there is here in actuality. God's purposes stand. His purpose to rise up evil from within David's house comes through those within David's house. And those within David's house, like Absalom, will be held accountable for their actions. This is the reality of God's word. It's the reality of the economy of God's work. He is sovereign and we're responsible. And so we need to keep that in mind as we make our decisions and as we work through these things that go on. God's purposes stand. And evil seems to be rising up. It seems Absalom has opened the door here and allowed the serpent into the house. And that serpent, that thief, comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we might have life. And so David's perfect son will accomplish God's purposes. We hold to that. We trust him in that. And I, and, I, and I pray and invite you that if you never have trusted in Jesus to do that. Secondly, the wisdom and ways of God are not the wisdom and ways of the world. And we need to be discerning in this. Remember what James says. Go back and read that today on your own. The fruit of worldly wisdom could not be clearer. Jealousy, selfish ambition, it, it, is, it is worldly, it is unspiritual. It is divisive. There's no willingness to even talk or compromise. Yeah, there are, there are things that are unnegotiable, right? We understand that. I'm not talking about that. But yet worldly wisdom 
is pure and it's peaceable and it's gentle and it's open to reason and it's merciful. And righteousness comes from it. So we just need to be discerning church as we watch not just what goes on around us, but even as we work through decisions. The wisdom and ways of God is not the wisdom and ways of the world. Thirdly, charisma and public appeal mean absolutely nothing. In fact, they're dangerous if there's no character to back it up. It must be something that we keep in mind. And unfortunately, within the church, the cult of the celebrity is as strong as it is in the world. It's true in the church. We have to guard against that. We have to look for that Christ-like character. So we have to be on careful and be on guard in that. And then finally, as we come to this communion, I want us to think for just a second. In fact, I invite you to turn over to Luke 15 in the New Testament. And I want us to think about another story about another father and another son and another kiss. In Luke chapter 15, we know this we know this story. The story of the prodigal son, this wayward son. I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to pick up the reading of it there around verse 20. The son there in the pig pen has come to his senses. It says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So there is a bridge. From a cold father, an angry father, a hurting father, a grieving father, to a rebellious, conniving, scheming son. In Luke 15, we have this picture of this son who comes back to his dad. And the dad runs. And the dad opens, in, opens his arms and embraces him. And he kisses him. And he means it. He means it. And there's a meal. There's a meal in that house of that loving father whose heart yearned to be reconciled to that wayward boy. That boy stinks like pigs. And God says, bring him in. That boy's been rebellious. He spent all of his inheritance. God says, bring him in and restore him. That boy hadn't eaten anything except the leftovers from the pigs. And the father says, kill the fatted calf. So he extends his arms and welcomes him. That's the father we need, right? And that's the meal we need. And the grace we need is found in the cross. There was not much grace in David's heart to give to Absalom. There is in God's. And so I invite you. God invites us to be reminded of just how gracious and good he is. 
And that David's perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in him is where justice and mercy meet. In him is where we find the grace and love of God most perfectly demonstrated for us. I'm thankful for that kiss, aren't you? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to this table, for all that it represents. Lord Jesus, you came into this world to defeat the devil, to take away the, the, the wrath of God. You came into this world to bear upon yourself the punishment that our sin deserved. And Lord, you did it freelingly and lovingly and willingly. And we thank you that in you, at your cross, is where we find the mercy and we see the justice met. And we thank you for this reminder of that in this communion as we come together today, Lord, as your family. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts as we prepare for this. Lord, show us where we've sought after or followed the world's wisdom. Show us, Lord, where we've listened to the lies of the enemy. Show us, God, where we can be used by you as ministers of reconciliation. Father, do a work in each of our hearts, we pray, as we worship and sing. Prepare us, Lord, for this. And I do that. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.